Welcome to Ghazali. Today we have with us one of the most important scholars uh, about the partition of India, Professor Dr. Ishtaq Ahmed. He is a professor emeritus in Stockholm, University of Stockholm. He is of Pakistani descent and uh, he has been expressing views, views absolutely fearlessly about the partition, about Muhammad Ali Jinnah and uh, about uh, many other issues connected with uh, the partition. Uh, he has written uh, many books, People on the Move, Punjabi Colonial and Post-Colonial Migration, The Punjab Blooded, Partition and Cleansed, and a book on Jinnah, Jinnah, his successes, failures, and role in history. Uh, welcome to Ghazali. Uh, I think I will start with a small uh, work I did about partition. About yeah. 15 years ago, I was invited to Weissregal Lodge in Shimla, which was actually a place where the negotiations for partitions happened. Correct. And I was sitting on the same table uh, where the leaders of India and Pakistan, Jinnah and the other guys were sitting, and there's a yeah. picture of them on the... Uh, and then the director of the institution requested me that I should create a work of art based on the history of that building. I see. Well. And uh, one of the most important uh, sort of uh, things was Harappan civilization. I made some reading on that. And I found the Dancing Girl of Mohenjo-Doro is a 10 centimeters tall sculpture, which is in a museum in India. And uh, Mohenjo-Doro and Harappa are in Pakistan. I suddenly realized that the mother of our civilization, the Indian civilization, the Harappan civilization, Mohenjo-Daro and Harappa, are in Pakistan. And all the great contribution of Islam is in India, like Taj Mahal, Fatehpur Sikri, and many things. So this is a paradox of partition. Can you make a comment on that? Now that you point out, it adds to my list of paradoxes. Mm -hmm. So amazingly, I mean, this is also true now that you mention it. Uh, it depends on how do you associate the histories of Pakistan and India with Mohanjo-Daro and Harappa. The way they tell the story about Pakistan is, and I quote Muhammad Ali Jinnah from the 8th or probably the 10th of March 1944 at Aligarh, mm -hmm. where he said, when the first Indian converted to Islam, that's when the foundations of Pakistan were laid because his community ostracized him. Okay. And so that's one way of explaining Pakistan's origin. Obviously, it doesn't fit into the past, the long past, the prehistoric past of this region. So that's a way of uh, telling the story of Pakistan. Mm -hmm. In India, of course, there are many theories about the uh, Indic civilization and now apparently Mohanjo-Daro and Harappa are central to it. But in the past, we have ideas of the Aryans coming and uh, they then creating a new civilization which is based on Sanskrit and uh, the continuation and so on. So there are these variations on uh, but ironically, as you now point out over the historical record, uh, the Muslim rulers uh, established themselves at Delhi or Agra. And therefore, most of the famous uh, 
architecture of that time is all in what is now India, except for the tomb of uh, Emperor Jahangir, which is in Lahore, and then in Sheikhupura we have uh, Hiran Manar and so on. But most of the relics uh, of the Muslim period, yeah, well, let me know that you say we have Qutbuddin Abak, yes. the Qutb Manar in India, but his mausoleum is in Lahore. So you have all these facts standing directly in the face of the two-nation theory and a way of uh, looking at history in, in this arbitrary manner. Okay, I'm a student of Gandhi. Yeah. And every time I go and deliver a talk on Gandhi anywhere, yeah. there's always a question here, but he was responsible for the partition or Nehru was responsible for it. So let us come to the partition. In yeah. your opinion, who was responsible for the partition? No, I don't have an opinion. I have the evidence. Yes. There's a difference between an opinion and an evidence. Yes. And I have said that from the 22nd of March 1940 onwards until Pakistan came into being, I would like even one speech, even one oblique reference to Jinnah being willing to have a power sharing deal within a united India. I've quoted him ad infinitum, emphasizing this, underlining this, vehemently, vociferously, relentlessly. And therefore to say that uh, Jinnah did not want partition and it's uh, Gandhi and Congress which forced it upon is just absurd. It's unsubstantiated, it has no uh, basis in facts, but it's a popular theory which caught off because it was sanctified by Cambridge University mm -hmm. and we have a very colonial mind. Nobody went and looked at what Jinnah had been saying mm -hmm from the time he took up the cudgels on behalf of the two-nation theory to demand Pakistan. Sardar Patel, Nehru and Congress fought for the unity of India until the very end this is what they wanted. But who could finally decide the future, the destiny of the subcontinent? It was the British. And I've given uh, conclusive evidence nobody can question because this is based on direct primary sources from the transfer of power, that it's within the British military finally, or the conservative elements, who thought that a divided Pakistan, a divided India with Jinnah very much willing to be part of the Western bloc of countries in the Cold War which was emerging, was a better bet than to leave India united under Nehru and the leftists and the anti-imperialists. So all that evidence is given the in The 1937 my... election results were far from uh, sort of predicting a partition. Well, I would say inadvertently there are things called in political science uh, intended and unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. The unintended consequence of the 1937 election was that when the Congress realized that the Muslims have not voted for the all India Muslim League, and rightly so. This is how they hardly got any seats. They got any hardly any seats in the Muslim majority areas. So they said that the Muslims are not uh, with the Muslim League, and they take a decision which later on I think played into the hands of the Pakistan sort of idea, and that is that uh, in the UP, uh, some claim that there was an understanding between. Muslim leaguers and the Congressites, 
that whatever the result of the election, we'll form a coalition government. But some people question that. They say this is just an idea which has been tossed around without any basis in fact. Maybe that's true. Let's not question it. But one thing is definite. Once the election results showed that the people had not waited, voted for the Muslim League, the Congress leadership advised by uh, Rafi Ahmed Kadwai, Mulana Abul Kalam Azad, and some people say Chaudhary Khaliku Zaman involved in those negotiations. The decision taken was that uh, in the UP, uh, if the, anybody elected on the Muslim League ticket must resign from the Muslim League and join the Congress before they could be considered for a post in the ministry. At that point, then I say Jinnah had the qualities of a leader which an ordinary leader would have caved in, realizing that the people are not voting for his party. He came up with a statement which he conveyed to the governor of the uh, uh, Bombay presidency, Lord Bearborn, I think, that henceforth I'll use communalism. Communalism means that two communities have just antagonistic relationship. There is nothing common. When did this happen? For thousand years, they were, moving, yes. they were staying perfectly fine. Not perfectly, but more or less they fine. They were living together. They had all their different ways of, you know, worshipping and, and social rules, which were not always the best to live together. But they lived in peace because apart from the orthodox way of thinking, we had a very strong tradition of the bhaktis and the jogis and the Sufi saints and the gurus. All of them preach what is known in uh, Sufi literature. And I'm sure there is an equivalent in uh, Sanskrit literature as well. What is known as Vahdatul Vajud, the unity of creation. So on that basis, all humanity is considered one. But there is another notion, Vahdatul uh, Shahud that you belong to a community based on your faith. So these two ideas were around all the time. One, the orthodox, and one, popular people's way of dealing with orthodoxy, which we say is Vahdatul Vajud, creation, unity of creation. But now when Jinnah was saying uh, that I'll use communalism, he was declaring his mission that he will encourage Muslims to oppose a united India because that would lead to a Congress-led government which he said, which he described as a Hindu government. And would mean this, permanent, permanent rule of Hindus over Muslims. Well, I have said that from 1857 onwards, you can find ideas of, of the two-nation theory being uh, advanced from both sides. So, the blame game would be, <laughs> would be to begin with Sir Sayyid, but not remember that Almost the same year, somebody in Bengal said the same thing. Mm -hmm. So that's pointless. Mm -hmm. I'm saying these ideas, you can trace their origin, you know, here and there. Mm -hmm. But they were marginal to the freedom struggle which had emerged under Mahatma Gandhi, which was uh, like accommodating everyone and fighting for the freedom of India. So on the sidelines, you have Gowalkar and Savarkar and you have... Alama Iqbal and Chaudhary Rahmat Ali. But this thing moves center stage after this election. And when Jinnah then 
decides to use communalism as the way to argue for the division of India. And he never relented from that. So that's the... And one of the reasons you mentioned he got open filled because all the Congress leaders were in the prison. And he was alone. Two things happened. Yeah, yeah. During the Second World War, uh, while Mahatma Gandhi was uh, quite uh, sympathetic to helping the British, uh, the Congress leadership as a whole rejected it on grounds which were intellectually, political science-wise, very sound, but not very realistic. And that was that you say that the British say that we are fighting the war for the freedom of India against fascism. But we are an enslaved nation. First free us and then we will do our duty to play our role against fascism. This sounded very good, but the British desperately needed to hold on to India because uh, the mainstay of recruiting soldiers, one of them was British India. They were, they had plans of recruiting 2.5 million people. So how could they transfer powers? Jinnah Saab then went, and I've given all the evidence saying, now you should realize the importance of the All India Muslim League. We'll support you during the war. At the end of the war, you should ensure that whatever the future of India, the minorities or the Muslims will have the right of self-determination. And they will not be forced to live and in any other dispensation against their will. The British did not categorically or explicitly give such a commitment, but a very vague one, saying that at the end of the war, the minorities will not be pushed into staying in a framework which they did not approve of. And then the second major blunder, I think, and it's not very good to say in India, is the Quit India movement. The Quit India movement was a disaster in the sense that instead of the British quitting India, they were all crushed by the British state, by people of our origin who served in the British police and intelligence services and and they were brutal to the local people who were fighting. And it was crushed. The whole Congress leadership sat in jail and they sat in jail until June 1945. For three years, Jinnah Saab had the open field, field. open field. And he went around telling Muslims of Islam will be annihilated in Islam. These are his words. Muslims will be obliterated. These are synonyms, but they, these are his words. And many times he, he would say that. And, uh, and by the time the 45, 46... And he also it, used Quran. He said this, it was a sacred duty. Of yeah, yeah that came in uh, during uh, the election campaign, yeah. which started in August 1945. So on the 7th of September 1945 in Karachi, he says that the Quran demands every Muslim to read uh, read it because international law, criminal law, civil law, personal law, uh, all laws are covered by the Quran and that's what is going to be the framework for Pakistan. And this is a lawyer saying? Yes, he's a lawyer is saying and he said it many times later as well. The only time Islam and Pakistan are not <clears throat> mentioned in one speech together is on the 11th of August 1947. Thereafter, the relationship between Islam and Pakistan organically is restored 
in Jinnah's speeches. So I've given all that evidence. Another very important point you made was basically because the British wanted both to be in the Commonwealth. There was that agenda. Yes, yes, I've given. Mountbatten was sent with that agenda. Yes, and actually they say Mountbatten was very cozy with Nehru, but he was working in the best interest of the British. He cajoled Nehru into entering the uh, Commonwealth or applying for the Commonwealth. And there was a very nice argument which you explained. Yes, yes, the argument was that, look, if you don't, and Pakistan is admitted in case of war between, you, between India and Pakistan, we'll be treaty bound to support Pakistan. At that point, uh, uh, Nehru gave in. Uh, Sardar Patel and the rest were already agreed to being in the Commonwealth. So I've given all the evidence which is in the public domain and so nobody has been able to question them. There are some biographers of Jinnah who sort of claim that internally he was secular. What has you to say? Well, I don't know what is internal secularity. And I've given an example, if you like, I can repeat it, that Jinnah Saab famously was a consumer of ham sandwiches and a regular daily drinker of alcohol. Yeah. If that is secularism, then that's one type of secularism, okay. but which I don't think is very interesting yeah. Yeah. because Hitler, as you know, was a vegetarian and he should be then the epitome of all that is peaceful. And would you agree to that? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, you, and then the direct action came. Yes, direct action came. is a call for uh, to resort to arms by Jinnah, yeah. 16th. It's everything. He's saying I'm holding a gun yeah. and I can also fire it. It's a very graphic way of yeah. giving an, a, a lead what to do. And it resulted in the first major massacre, yeah. uh, organized massacre, first two days of Hindus. Yeah. And then in the backlash, uh, Hindus attacked. Now let us come to the other subject because we have not much time. Yeah. Uh, right now there's a big debate going on in the country about unified civil code. Yeah. In Goa, we already have one. Yes. Because we have uh, still Napoleonic law here. Yeah. And uh, the inheritance law and all these things are basically not changed. Okay. Uh, so, Goa, we have unified civil code. Yeah. And now uh, there is a talk about uh, unified civil code for the whole country. Yeah. Uh, now, you have always argued that this is a good thing. And even in Pakistan, an Islamic country like Turkey, mm. they have something which That's is right. more progressive. In, in Turkey, the Sharia is applied only at the time of prayers and, at, and during burial. Those are in accordance with the rules of Sharia. You pray according to the Hanafi Sunni uh, prayers in the mosque. And at burial, then the state gives you a state burial for every Turk. And that is also according to Hanni, Hanfi Sunafi, uh, Hanfi Sunni uh, rich, uh, uh, rites and rituals. That's the only time. All other relationships, legal, constitutional, and so on, are based on advanced uh, uh, codes of the 20th, 21st century. Uh, although Erdogan is now trying to reverse some of the things, but I don't think he has. Uh, he will be able to do that. Uh, in Pakistan, uh, General Ayub Khan, later on Field Marshal, came up, came up with very progressive uh, Muslim law ordinance of 1962, which uh, put this age limit that a girl must be at least 16 before she could be married. Because previously, the ulama position is there is no age limit in Islam. 
so even a child can be married right. off yeah so that was changed then the three talaq thing which is common among muslims was also not withdrawn but restricted because it was required that if you uh, want to have a second or a third wife your previous wife should uh, approve of your decision mm-hmm. and that this case will be registered with the union council which is the local government which brought things in the public and the and the at the and the role of the union councils was to uh, try to arbitrate between the two so that the family is not broken up that also i think was a very progressive step mm-hmm. and because men would previously throw out their wives without being uh, you know exposed in the public now uh, uh, this thing became public the third is that in islamic law shia and sunni let's say i am a grandfather and i have four five children uh, if one of my uh, children were to die a boy or a girl his her children will not inherit my property mm-hmm. it will go to the other siblings so once again uh, the government argued that the purpose of islam has always been justice and this is unfair to the orphans who are left without any protection and any security and so they changed the laws and i remember uh, the ulama and the conservatives you know calling ayub khan uh, renegade to islam and so on but he stood his ground and that law remains in pakistan even when we had ziaul haq in power who was a avowed fundamentalist and i've said everybody has a daughter or a sister at home and nobody wants the the men to have this freedom to so even zia couldn't change the law i think i also believe that uniform civil code will be good for the muslim community in I india i strongly believe it yeah. will uh first of all uh, this it will also call the bluff of those who are using it just to make political points yeah so if you want a uniform civil code it should be uniform and it should give the same equality and the same obligations yeah. to all citizens so the uh, yeah. so the uh, conservative muslims have uh, a way of uh, you know yeah. opposing it mm-hmm. but there is a political manipulation mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. and i say let's have a uniform civil code mm-hmm. it should be arrived at after mm-hmm. consultation mm-hmm. and through due process of law whichever mm-hmm. has been established mm-hmm. and then everybody should accept yeah. it Okay, let us come to the last part of this conversation. I think you have uh, very interesting remedies to suggest. Yes. I also believe that India and Pakistan have to grow together, develop together. Yeah. Animosity is not good for any country. Quite the amount of money which is spent on military, if it can be utilized for education and health, Absolutely. I think we will be uh, great countries. So please uh, su- give us your solutions. Well, first of all, I would say uh, the visa regime should become more humane. you know uh, pakistanis almost never are given a visa unless they have good connections and the same for indians wanting to come to pakistan uh uh i would say okay if you can't trust each other let's start with 65 and above uh, some people say that you know terrorists would get the visa i said the day terrorists need a visa to come that's the end of terrorism <laughs> so there's a not a very convincing argument so this is one start the atari 
واگا بارڈر میک اٹ اوپن لیٹ گڈس فلو فریلی پاکستان انویسٹ زیرو بٹ گیٹس ہنڈریڈ پرسینٹ لینڈ ٹیکس اوکٹرائی اینڈ آل ادر لیویز دیٹ یو کین امپوز سو پاکستان آلسو گیٹس گڈس دا کامن پور پیپل نیڈ ان دا کچن آنینس ٹماٹوز اینڈ سو آن وچ آر سو ڈیئر ان پاکستان ایز کمپیئر ٹو انڈیا اینڈ دین ون اسٹیٹ لنکس آر اسٹیبلشڈ ون کین ہیو جوائنٹ وینچرس اینڈ ون کین بلڈ آن اٹ اینڈ فائنلی آئی ووڈ سے دیر آر ٹو ویز آف ڈیلنگ ود دا کشمیر ڈسپیوٹ ون از دیٹ یو ڈونٹ ڈسکس ڈسکس اٹ ایٹ دا another way which i would say a comprehensive way of doing it would be to accept uh, what has what history has decided that the four wars have not led to any major alteration of the line of control so why not make it the international border uh, but, but like manmohan singh and general musharraf had agreed these borders will be porous so the kashmiris could come and the divided families can start you know interacting and that should also be a way of promoting trade and understanding and as this if this experience is good we can then relax the borders in punjab and sindh as well so there can be two states three four five states called the union of independent south asian states or something like the yeah, european union yeah, yeah. the indian union like the sarc charter is already a precursor of this idea it's the imbroglio of india pakistan confrontation yeah. which is holding everything back i absolutely agree with you thank you for joining us and let's say cheers to a day when both the countries shall be friends yes and we do it with water yes yeah? yes <laughs> thank you ji